0: Hey, thanks for joining us. Our email address is Beer at gmail. Feel free to drop us a line as you listen to the show. And here we go. The first episode, our premiere of our brand new podcast. Like you. Welcome to
1: the new podcast, History, Politics, and Beer, where we examine contemporary issues through the lens of history. We are solving the world's problems one podcast at a time. Now, from the home office in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, we invite you to sit back with
0: an ice cold one and enjoy the pontifications of your hosts, Matt Shockey and Jeff Hudson. Politics and beer, Um, a podcast where we look at history and politics and drink beer. And the beer is just because beer is good and you solve world problems drinking beer doesn't have to be beer, could be coffee, could be tea, uh, but in this case, we're join, uh, enjoying a nice IPA, an uh, in India Pale Ale, uh, for tonight's discussion on the Second Amendment. Joining me is a good friend of mine, Jeff Hudson. Uh, he taught for something years, what, 30 years?
1: Uh, 31 years at LS and two years before that, so 33
0: years altogether. So 33 years. I think we spent about 20 years together, or 25 years together at LS, and he taught... Seemed like 50. <laughs> it's like marriage. <laughs> so we're going to talk about the Second Amendment. Um, it's very topical, obviously, with what happened in Parkland, uh, Florida. Uh, and this, this one seems to be different, Jeff. You know, a couple years ago when Sandy Hook happened, I really thought that was a tipping point. I really thought that things would change. Kindergartners would gun down point blank range and nothing happened. But this seems to be different. Do you, do you see that, that you think this is a different moment?
1: I, I do think it's different. I also think these things, uh, people, you know, there was a fear people would get nerd to the violence, that, that as this kept happening, uh, the mass shootings would just become an accepted part of the American landscape. It's not going to become an accepted part. You can see it with the young people and the way they've responded um and there is going to be more fights about the proper role of firearms in american society and that's that's just what's going to happen i think as we go along we can i'll have some facts and some interesting studies that will will support uh, the idea that there's There'll be different attitudes forming on on this from both sides e- even if you want to call it both sides. one of the things i don't like about uh talking about politics in the United States is we you know because we have a two party system which is that's not what was mandated in the constitution, but that's what we have there tends to be a pro side mm-hmm. and a con side and really on an issue as comp any complex issue but certainly on a uh uh, issue as complex as guns, there are many different sides to the debate. There's not two. There's not two different courses you can go down to. Uh uh so uh, hopefully we can get into some of that complexity.
0: And just for complete sort of putting things on the table, um I'm a gun owner. I own four or five guns. Um I'm not a gun enthusiast by any stretch of the imagination. I, I like shooting. Um Shooting clays is fun. I've been hunting a few times. Not my bag. I'm not anti-hunting by any stretch. My grandfather hunted. My dad hunted. I just don't like being out when it's cold. Um, so I'm sort of neutral, leaning gun control, but I'm not. I'm not certainly not anti-gun. I'm not very pro-gun. That's kind of where I am on this whole thing to start off with. Where where would you place yourself?
1: Well, I'm a gun owner as well. Um, I support the Second Amendment. What I think the Second Amendment means. Um, I was taught the use of firearms along with my brother by my father. My father was a lifelong hunter. He grew up during the Great Depression, actually put food on the table with his firearms on the farm he lived in in Indiana. And then he went to World War II. And so I was instructed in the use of firearms by a hunter and, and a combat veteran at, at a pretty young age. And my my feelings about those times are, are my dad and I, my dad worked hard. I didn't spend a lot of time with him. So those times I spent out with him uh, learning how to use firearms, I remember them fondly. So I would not call myself anti-gun by any stretch. But I was taught that firearms are a huge responsibility right from the time I was introduced to them. And uh, it's not apparent to me that people who buy firearms consider it the huge responsibility that it is. Of course, some do. But I'm afraid that some don't, and that's of concern to me. All
0: right. Well, let's jump into the weeds here because if we're going to talk about the Second Amendment in America, we have to go way back in our way back machines to the 1700s and talk about um, England, talk about Britain, um, us defending ourselves, and where where's where's the what's the basically the genesis of the Second Amendment? What was the intent of it? Um, and and then we can get into the conversation of are we using original text? Are we looking at the purpose of the amendment? So, I'll, I'll throw it to you to try to give us a little bit of background on Madison as he wrote this thing and the perspective that he brought to the table.
1: Okay, well, the Second Amendment, for those—and I've talked to many people who think that, you know, the Second Amendment just is a general thing, but it's it's a fairly specific thing, but it's a little bit ambiguously worded. Here it is, word for word. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And it's important to remember after the part about the security of a free state— it's a comma, and it says the right of people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. So the idea of militia and bearing arms are linked. They're not separated. So what were they trying to, to say? And if you know a little bit about the history of militias, uh, what they were were uh, sort of ad hoc military units, local, sometimes state. And their purpose was protection Especially in frontier areas where there weren't regular armies. Right. You
0: couldn't rely on the central government to come in and save your rear end. Right. You were out there. You had to defend yourself. And local organization made sense um, to put a local militia together to handle those immediate needs that the community, your state, the town may have.
1: Yeah. One of George Washington's uh, early responsibilities, I think he was 19 when he was put in charge of the Virginia militia the whole state, and his job was uh, to supervise and lead those guys and protect uh, the people, especially in in Western Virginia, from uh, Indian uprisings. Uh, There's some indication that militias were also thought of as a barrier against slave rebellions. I don't think that was common at the time Washington was there. And so uh, the militias were important. Uh, it's interesting. In the, in the British colony of Massachusetts Bay, all able-bodied men between 16 and 60, 16 and 60, you think of life expectancy back right. then, were required to participate in their local militia. Now, uh, they had some men who were selected from the general ranks of town-based men, and they were to be ready for rapid deployment. These were the so-called <laughs> minute men. Minute men. And
0: members of the Minutemen Men, uh, were no more than thirty years old. Thank God for that. Yes, <laughs> that, that that excludes you and I. Yes, we're not we're not rapidly deploying to anything. No. <laughs> but,
1: um, go
0: ahead. Um, when We talk about a militia. Um, I think it's also important to talk about why they why we don't just rely on a standing army, right? I mean, because th- that's that's what we I mean. I don't need a state militia here in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, if uh, Maryland invades, I guess, you know, if we're invaded, I'm depending on the federal government with the most powerful military in the world to protect me. I mean, that's just, I'm not going to pick up my shotgun and go outside and defend myself against an invader. Why aren't our founding fathers relying on that same thing that I have today, this large standing, powerful army that can come in?
1: Well, they didn't believe in having stand- – they thought a standing army was a threat to uh, uh, the, p- the potential d- democracy, that they- you'd have a military dictatorship. They thought large standing armies in the past had been used by kings to oppress people. They cost a lot of money. They were a source of constant tax raising, which, of course, we didn't like. Uh, and so part of it is, is just this – a little bit of a fear of a large standing army. Now, the experience of the revolution taught many of our founders that you had to have a regular army, that it had to be well-trained. The militia did okay against the British... The, the, the war of um, independence started when militias were attacked. Right. And you know that story.
0: Yes. Yeah, absolutely. We, we talk about the militias. Um, when, the, when Britain sends the... Uh, it's army over here. We're not in revolt. Um, you know, Benjamin Franklin said, you know, you can send the troops over, but what are you going to find? You're going to find men who aren't paying their taxes. Troops are not going to be able to force men to pay taxes. Troops are not going to be able to force men to comply with laws that they don't agree with. So, really, all you're doing is placing military men in a civilian area. And only bad things can happen from that. Something bad is going to happen. And sure enough, it did. We get the Boston Massacre. Um, then with, because of local militias, though, it was also easy sort of, well, one of the first things they wanted to do was get the powder supplies, right? If we can keep that local militia from having a powder supply or having guns, then this is going to be a cakewalk because they don't have a standing army. And that plays a little bit into modern day fears that the government's going to come and get your guns because, in essence, that's what the British did. Um, maybe not coming into houses, but certainly going after the magazines and the storehouse of powder because, really, that was more valuable almost than the guns, the powder. If you didn't have the powder, you couldn't fight. As a matter of fact, at Bunker Hill, that's one of the reasons why the colonists, it is the reason the colonists had to abandon Bunker Hill was because they simply ran out of powder. Um, the British win, but... They didn't win that day. So there's that part of it. Um, And you were going, you want to bounce it back to you for a little bit more on? Well,
1: we're doing the revolution. Uh, Our first government, national government, was the Articles of
0: Confederation. Which a lot of people
1: don't know that. Right. That was our first national government. And that's the government that won the revolution. Um, And it had a provision that protected militias. It says, every state shall always keep up a well-regulated and disciplined militia. Sufficiently armed and accoutered, and shall provide and constantly have ready for use in public stores a due number of field pieces and tents, and a proper quantity of arms, ammunition, and camp equipage. So, it, even in the article in during the time of the Revolution, the founders understood uh, that the militia wouldn't be just dependent on privately owned firearms; that there would be, like you said, stores of powder. I mean, I'm not going to keep my. It says here field pieces. I'm not keeping my field piece <laughs> in my cabin. I'm going to have an armory or a warehouse, a barn, where those things are, are kept. And the militia is thought up fondly after the revolution because uh, it, it's romanticized yes, a absolutely. little bit. Uh, there's some ling- lingering goodwill. So when the Constitution is written, it has provisions for having a militia, and of course the Second Amendment protects your right to firearm and links that to uh, to this. Now, George Washington, uh, who, of course, was the commander of the Continental Army, didn't have, maybe he had a more practical view of the militia. He wrote, To place any dependence on the militia is assuredly resting upon a broken staff. Men just dragged from the tender scenes of domestic life, unaccustomed to the din of arms, totally unacquainted with every kind of military skill, which being followed by a one of confidence in themselves when opposed to troops regularly trained, disciplined, and appointed, superior knowledge and superior in arms, makes them timid and ready to fly from their own shadows. If I was called upon to declare upon oath whether the militia had been most serviceable or hurtful upon the whole, I should subscribe to the latter. So George Washington, with his experience in militias. Is knows that you need an army when you're invaded by uh, a power that has a disciplined and trained army. You need
0: professionals. And what's interesting about that is he was even in that time period, in the 18th century, he was already talking about the difference in military, uh, the difference in armament. He made a comment about a superior gun that the military would have over the civilian, which I another point I want to make is this mythology that everyone in colonial America had a gun above their mantle, ready to pull off the mantle. I think uh, people of my generation grew up watching Schoolhouse Rock and the cartoon of the guy pulling the gun off the mantle and get your powder, get your gun, report to General Washington. And that's not the case. Guns were expensive. They are individually made by a gunsmith um, and if you're living in a seaport town like Boston or, uh, let's say, Williamsburg, most people didn't own guns. Why would you? They're, they're very expensive. And if you visit Colonial Williamsburg today, one of the neat things to see is the Central Magazine where all the firearms are stored for that particular town. So there is this mythology um, that they were carrying the same weapons as the military, no they weren't they were not carrying military grade what what these guys were carrying were not they, they've been way too heavy i mean the the guns that and i'm not a firearms expert by any stretch but the firearm that a military guy would have been carried would have to be stronger in build and heavier than what uh, a guy's hunting within the woods. So there's even that mythology that everyone had a gun. It's certainly not true.
1: right. I, I think the the people on the frontier, yes, absolutely. As, uh, they had guns because right. you know they could go out into the fields and and shoot deer and sh- and 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 bring home game. And they also were subject to Indian attack and during uh, attack by the French. I mean uh, the, uh, during the French and Indian War, I actually uh, traced my ancestry a little bit and I found out the guy, who came from England again a guy named Daniel Hudson was killed in Massachusetts in an Indian massacre. Okay. So and so these things did happen and if you were uh, away from where a powerful militia could be or you're outside of Philadelphia or even Lancaster where you're not going to be subject to those things. I mean people did have firearms and they right. got trained in those hunt basically hunting with their dad. They were there were hunting implements first, and then self-defense implements, tools, second. But anyhow, uh, the Constitution uh, does mention these militias, and it says in Article 1, Section 8, Congress shall have the power to provide for organizing, arming, and disciplining the militia, and for governing such part of them as may be employed in the service of the United States, reserving to the states, respectively, the appointment of the officers, and the authority of training the militia. It also says in Article 2, which is about the president, the president shall be commander-in-chief of the Army and Navy of the United States and of the militia of the several states when called into the actual service of the United States. So what you have there is something that eventually leads to what we call the National Guard. Right. Where you are a member of the state guard, the governor can call you out in times of emergency or riots, uh, serving somewhat uh, the, the role of the militia in old days because the militia was called out to put down Shays' Rebellion and, mm-hmm. and other things. So, and, and, and also, it makes the provision, because we're moving from a state-based government to one where the federal government will have more power, that the president— when we're in, in actual need of the state militias, he will be the commander-in-chief. In effect, it's what we call
0: when the National Guard is nationalized, Right. And, and we see this, the way they view this, is, and the, the way they view this immediate threat and being at war, you, we see that in how they, we say we're going to declare war. It's Congress that's going to declare war. There's this moment where now we are on a war footing. Um, and in modern america that's gone we haven't declared war since world war ii right so this idea of being at war becomes a very fluid idea today um back in that time there was the militia for the immediate defense and then for a prolonged engagement the military could be used we don't have that today we don't have those demarcations of all of a sudden now we need our military okay now we don't need our military we are sort of in modern america this fluid use of our military all around the world all the time it's we're always engaged in something at some point even now today is the war on terror but even before that our military was always engaged so the the world has changed so much i guess let me i guess if i could Sum all this up, and I'll sum this up with this question. If Madison were alive today, would he write the amendment the same way?
1: Well, uh, yeah. And, and the original amendment, oddly, you know, I think oddly enough, contained a provision that allowed conscience objectors not to serve, not to carry farms, which is an interesting thing if you think about it uh, at, at the time. But that was. Uh, taken out and, and it, in its final form. Oh, the,
0: I didn't know that. I didn't know there was an original part that allowed Yes. People,
1: oh. It said that people who had religious objections would not have to oh, be I, forced to carry uh, a firearm. Okay. But uh, and So that was part of their rights. But when we turn, let's talk a little bit about, uh, and give people a background on this general ratification debate. Okay. And and between the federalists and the anti-federalists because I think that plays into the modern arguments over gun control as well. So you're the historian, why don't you explain the constitution ratification what the anti-federalists objected to and and how okay. that was eventually resolved with the ratification.
0: You have to really look at the constitution as being passed in two different parts. We get the original part of the Constitution, the, the original articles, and that's sort of 1.0. And then in a compromise, we're going to get the Bill of Rights. Um, and and why, why is the Bill of Rights so important to the anti-federalists? Because it's individual rights. Um, this, the, the argument was, is that if this is a government of the people, by the people, and for the people, who are you protecting yourself from? Yourself? if you don't like somebody you vote them out you don't need the guarantee rights you don't need to all these guarantees because there's no authority to be protected from you are that authority and the argument against that was basically what are you afraid of you know i think hancock said what are you afraid of wasting too much paper you know why not have a bill of rights what is there the danger now Madison solves really what the danger would be, and the idea is that you could read those Bill of Rights as to exclude other rights. That you know, well, if it's not in this list, then you don't have it. And he solves that problem with the Ninth Amendment, saying that rights not listed, um, you still have. So it's not, it's not, it's not viewed to exclude rights. So you have the um, the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists. The Federalists um, are the ones in in Philadelphia. Primarily the ones debating this thing, the ones writing this thing. Hamilton uh, is probably the best example of the Federalists in the early time period, and they believe in a strong central government. Um, they believe that power has to rest in Washington, D.C., and that this is a top heavy system. Uh, the Anti-Federalists are saying, no, it doesn't. The power is going to rest in the states and the states need to be the primary movers and shakers. And this is going to be probably in history, one of the most intense debates uh, civilians are going to participate in the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists. Do we want a strong central government? Do we want power in the states? And people take this seriously. Um you're probably going to go into the federalist papers um but there is extensive debate uh the federalists are going to win the day um they we are going to get a strong central government um they had the money they controlled the printing presses they were there in the room in philadelphia when they were writing the constitution they already had all of these arguments the anti-federalists which got the name from the federalists you don't really want to be known as the anti-anything uh, a little early branding there so you brand them the anti-federalists and they're always backpedaling um, but the the genius of this whole thing or the however you want to say it is that both sides give us something special the federalists give us the constitution the anti-federalists give us the bill of rights and both of those things coming together give us our rights and the structure of our government.
1: Well, and and that's where I think uh, one way that the idea of militia and firearms comes to be linked. Okay. In Federalist 46, Madison is trying to persuade the anti-Federalists. Of course, he wants them to vote for the Constitution. Right. That the standing army, which will now be paid for by and you'll be taxed for, which is part of the Constitution— And part of what Washington and the framers knew was necessary from their experience fighting Britain, that standing army won't be able to oppress the states and force them uh, and enforce a tyranny over them. Uh, When he was writing it, he said that uh, the military could be kept under a maximum of 30,000 troops, and that uh, if you had a militia, each state had a militia, you might have 500,000 people. So the militia could act as a bulwark against tyranny. Of course, it goes against a little bit the fact that the president can nationalize that (laughs) under the Constitution. And also, uh, Madison wasn't a general. You know, Washington had already dealt with this, and he wouldn't have Necessarily agreed that militias are going to defeat a standing army. That wasn't his experience in the Revolution. That's why he invited people to train the army, and he was a big advocate of having a professional army. But that's one of the reasons why militia and the ownership of firearms is linked in the original Constitution.
0: Ed Washington uses the military early during the Whiskey Rebellion. Um, you know, early on, how are we go? How are we going to pay for our new government? And one of the early things was an excise tax on whiskey. And those people in Western PA did not like that. Um, They made whiskey. And a lot of times whiskey was used as uh, as um, money. In essence, this was like almost an early income tax for them. And so they said, we're not paying it. Taxation without representation, blah, blah, blah. And Washington goes, no, 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 no. Uh, This isn't taxation without representation, You were represented. You just don't like the tax. And that's not a reason to fight. Uh, And if I remember correctly, I think 13,000 men were gathered, a military, marched over the Alleghenies to (laughs) Pittsburgh, and the whole thing ended very quickly. Um, So really, even early on, you weren't going to defend yourself against this huge army of 13,000 men marching over the Alleghenies at you, you know even early on it becomes sort of obvious that whatever system you have in place of local men being armed, if the federal government wants to overwhelm you, they're going to overwhelm you. And that's what Washington did.
1: Yeah. And, and yeah, he did what he would have predicted by his experience in the revolution. Right. Uh, That the, you know, exactly. Professionally led and trained army, uh, Is going to be victorious. Well, we knew this idea. Let's try to update, move forward from this and and talk about how this experience, the colonial experience, revolutionary experience, uh, the fact of our early government, the Articles of Confederation, ratification of the Constitution. How should this guide us going forward? What are our Rights to bear arms uh, now that most people are not members of what we would call a militia. Now, certainly, what the Constitution describes is a militia, which is something that can be nationalized. That's our National Guard, and they keep their weapons in armories. Yes. I mean, we don't, now, there are countries like Switzerland, I don't know mm-hmm. about Israel, but where people do take their military firearm home, but not in the United States. And to me, the National Guard, if we think of them, what could also fulfill Madison's idea in Federalist 46, that you could have a bulwark. These would guy, be guys with training. These would be guys who had access to modern, fully automatic rifles, tanks. Some National Guardsmen can fly F-16 mm-hmm. fighter jets. These are the guys who would uh, prevent uh, possibly a— a uh, tyranny being imposed by a standing military, basically because they they are part of that and have been trained that way. I think the idea that some people have, like you would have your firearm at home and you would run out, (laughs) which again, you mentioned that even back in the day when the weapons would have been somewhat similar, I would have had my musket at home and maybe a good one made by Martin Milan over here, and they would have had muskets and maybe I would have had a chance. Well now, you know, the government would have the Apache helicopter and I can't we can't sell you those things. They would have fully automatic weapons. They would have weapons that shoot a thousand rounds a minute. And the idea that an individual can have in their home something to fight these people is antiquated. And even as it was close to being antiquated 200 years ago, it's completely antiquated now. It is. I think
0: as we move through history I think it's important to note that the Second Amendment, for most of our history, is sort of a dead letter. It's ignored. Um, It is like the Third Amendment. Um, It's this is not. Some people might not know what the Third Amendment. Third Amendment is about quartering soldiers. That you cannot you cannot be forced to quarter soldiers in your home. Um, I think it's the only amendment not to have any argument in front of the Supreme Court. I don't know if the Third Amendment has ever been used in any sort of argument in front of the Supreme Court. But up into the 60s, um, the Second Amendment was pretty much in second place to that. It was simply a dead letter because n- the NRA was hunting, fishing, trapping. Um, it was
1: a genuine grassroots organization, too. I think yes. people who own firearms wanted to participate in, in a national organization. and. They trained people, they offered the hunting courses and gun safety courses.
0: But something fundamental is going to happen in the 1960s, and it's going to be the Black Panther Party. The Black Panthers, um, the Black Panther political party or protection party, I forget exactly what term they used, Um, one of their early early leaders was a second-year law student, and they were concerned about police shootings. Uh, Apparently unarmed black men were getting shot, and they didn't like that. And he read the second amendment to say, we can carry guns. We can be a militia. Um, And that's exactly what they did. They patrolled the streets with shotguns, um, staying 20 to 30 to 50 feet away from police officers, watching them do their job. Uh, Matter of fact, I think the Black Panthers even went to the state capitol in California with weapons slung over their shoulders. I think Ronald Reagan famously made a comment about there's no reason for any man to own such a gun yet carry one around. And that's, a, that's the time period he's referring to, that the Black Panther, and it's sort of an interesting thing, the thing that the Black Panthers are really one of the first groups. Now, other people were arguing that you had the right to carry a gun as well, but the Black Panthers were the first ones really with the presence and to challenge the law and say, yes, we can do this. You need a license to conceal, but you can carry wide open and they do it. Um, Then the NRA takes a dramatic turn, and they move away from this basically sportsmanship idea of weapons. Now, that's still alive with the NRA, absolutely, but they become much more focused on self-defense and legal ownership of a person to defend yourself against this threat, whatever it be, whether it be the government uh, or someone who... Or
1: the Black Panthers. or
0: Exactly, or the Black Panthers. So it, it, we kind of fast forward ourselves almost to the 60s and 70s, almost like that. The only other time I can really think of militias, even really historically being important, is after John Brown. Uh, the John Brown read on Harper's Ferry... That scared the South. Now we're talking about pre-Civil War here. Right. And when John Brown invades to Harper's Ferry, you see in the South, all these dormant militias click to life because now they're afraid of slave rebellions. And the Southern militia at John Brown is really the genesis of the Southern Army, the Confederate Army. They're pre-training, if you will. And besides that moment, I, there's not a whole lot that I can think of where militias are a central part of the history or even an argument that we're having about gun ownership. It isn't really to the 60s and 70s that this starts to come to the forefront.
1: Right. And, and in the United States, it, it, there was a, what we call a gun culture. Yes. And my father grew up, I mentioned he grew up during the depression and he uh, used firearms on his property. To help feed the family during the Depression. Uh, He used it as uh, 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 sort of a control. He used to shoot crows that would eat too much corn. Some things we would consider politically incorrect now.
0: Like my dad, when he was growing up on the farm, he used to shoot feral cats. Okay. It's just, you know, you're on the farm and you're 14 years old and you're kind of bored and Uh the cats are a problem. Go well, shoot feral cats.
1: The idea was shooting the crows was they were eating the corn. right? And, and, you know, during the Depression, you needed the corn. Yes. So my, my father, and I have pictures of him. Uh, his his mother was from Tennessee. And I have pictures of my dad with rabbits, Okay. several rabbits. And they were taken to the house. And, um, the uh, you know, his mom knew what to do with it. Later on in his life, I can remember my dad coming home with ducks. There's a lot of lakes in Indiana. They didn't used to have... Houses all around them. And my dad and my Uncle Howard would go out and shoot three or four ducks, bring them home. And that evening, my mother grew up in a farm in Indiana as well. The ducks were, you know, plucked and on the table. My mom really, she was get excited because she loved a duck. So this, this was a way, this is a culture I think a lot of Americans my age, I'm in my 60s now, are familiar with, at least those who have a dad that grew up in a, in a rural area where that was what was part and i think that was just the accepted part and i don't think these firearms hardly ever became uh instruments in crime they just didn't they were people grew up with these in their house and yes they could still be a danger but they were used as sporting tools at this point They're you're not on a frontier anymore but you're going out and, and and using these weapons. Now, that's also where the bulk of the sales of firearms were. Right. You know, uh, my uh, my dad had a, a hunting rifle. He had his service firearm when he was in the service, which at that time was an automatic forty-five, I think. But then, you know, he had his hunting rifle. I don't think he bought a pistol. He had a, a couple of shotguns. He always told me that for... Household protection, a shotgun was by far the best thing because you're probably going to be nervous, right? When you're and you would you don't have to be particularly accurate. And he thought a pump shotgun was great because it, you the the intruder could hear the uh, the the shell go into the chamber when you racked it. You know, and which that? is
0: you know that's the the and so the, you
1: would put fear into them. The they fact that you leave.
0: say that is really telling because your father being a World War II vet being a very strong individual his first inclination was to scare people so he didn't have to use it right right this is going to put fear into people that that for i won't have to shoot them
1: well you know i'm going to... the way i was taught and again there was a lot of care by dan thought that uh, there's some criticism that guns are part of a masculine culture which i think they are but the the masculine culture i grew up in they you had to be competent you had to be very safe it's, it's not something that would lead to school shootings or somebody who wasn't trained having a firearm. First firearm I was given was a, a Crossman 22-caliber pellet rifle. Now, I wasn't given a BB gun. Neither was my brother. Uh, BBs, my dad my dad thought that a BB gun, I would see, people would see it as a toy. Okay. He didn't want guns to be seen as toys. Right. The 22-caliber pellet rifle shot... A twenty-two caliber pellet. Yeah. It wasn't. Is it didn't shoot it as far as accurately. Subsonic. As a
0: red, you didn't get. Yeah.
1: Right, but you could you could kill a squirrel with it or something. Mm-hmm. Like it was a weapon, and my dad took me out with that and showed me how to to load it, how to clean it, how to store it, and he knew that if I accidentally shot myself in the foot or somebody else, we're not going to die from that. Right. You know, it's just But it's not a toy. It was never treated as a toy. The next thing, the next step in the progression was a 22 caliber rifle. And you can have you know, long rifles and short rifles. And, and he took my brother and I out with that. And the first time he took I still remember this. And, and you know, we were walking along and he saw a turtle. And he put the turtle on a, a log, a fallen log, and he shot it. And I know this is terribly politically incorrect. And he had, we had hollow points in the... In the so he showed where the shell had entered the tunnel. He wanted to shell. show you what damage it could do. Yeah, and then he showed the other side, which had blown out. And I, you got to remember, this is a guy who's seen people killed in war. He knew what a gun could do, and his idea was it was that, to show us as graphically as he possibly could. If you mishandle a firearm, this is what happens firearms, I remember just over and over again, you never swept the person. That means you never had the muzzle anywhere near, not even at somebody's foot, not somebody's ankle, nothing. If you had a gun, whether it was unloaded, whether there was a bullet in the chamber, not in the chamber, safety on, that muzzle never faced anyone. And it was just this very and then he taught us how to aim and shoot it. It was this very comprehensive thing because he thought that was for that was part of his growing up. Now my brother and I didn't need to put food on the table, <laughs> but that was my dad was passing something on. So I remember that, and, and that's what I understand when Americans talk about traditional gun culture. Yes, that's what it is, and it has absolutely, I think, nothing to do with the current situation of crime and shooting these firearms just aren't used in in
0: in, in crimes much at all so you're not taking a hunting rifle into a store right to hold up people with a 30-06 no you know that's not the weapon you're choosing you know but that's also that's not the weapons that are being sold in mass you know it seems that the weapons being sold in mass are the weapons of destruction We have the AR-15, and I would even include many handguns into that situation. Um, I know some people hunt with handguns, but a lot of handguns are being purchased, I don't think, for sportsmanship reasons. And I think think you can have legitimate reasons to own a handgun. I'm not anti-handgun, but when I see the magnitude of the sales of handguns, when you're talking about the millions and millions of them, then th- then I start to become concerned. I mean, are you? Do you have ten guns strapped to you at one time? I mean, it, it, what is the reason for owning all these? I know the other side of that argument would say, whatever. I'm I'm a law-abiding citizen. I don't care what the reason. There's no reason for you to question me as long as I don't use them illegally. I should be able to own a hundred firearms if I want to.
1: But Here's, here's one interesting thing that's happened. I'm talking about the gun culture. And that gun culture that my father was a part of and that I was a part of uh, to some extent um, has gone away. In Pennsylvania in 1982, the number of deer licenses was that sold was about 1,300,000. Is that in
0: 1972? That's
1: in 1982.
0: 1982.
1: As late as, and by 2008... That had dropped about three hundred thousand.
0: That's significant.
1: That's significant, and nationally, uh, license sales, uh, hunting license sales, have gone down. Nineteen eighty-two, you had almost seventeen million hunting licenses sold all over, and by two thousand and eight, it's down to fifteen million. You lost two million
0: with increasing population.
1: With increasing, yes, with with increasing population. And they actually, the Game Commission uh, in Pennsylvania was actually concerned about that. And in a survey of Pennsylvania hunters in 2004, a third of the hunters cited personal health and age as the number <laughs> one reason they did not plan to hunt in the future. So those are those are people my dad's age and maybe a little younger, and they're they're not, they're not hunting. And that culture, the actual culture of being able to use a firearm to bring food into the home and possibly protect the home in case you needed it, that's gone away. It is. So what's happened to gun sales? Well, that was the main source of gun sales. Most people my age, if there was a firearm in the home, it was used for hunting, possibly recreation, but more likely, certainly in Indiana, Northern Indiana, for hunting. So how do you replace that? How do the gun manufacturers replace the sales? Well, the biggest part of gun sales now are what they call the tactical side, which is the self-defense weapons. And that's an interesting thing. And along with that, then you have to understand that the NRA, which certainly was a organization-based, grassroots organization based on uh, hunters and other people who wanted to use firearms in a sporting manner, the money now comes uh, for the NRA from industry, from gun industry. And since 2005, the corporate allies in the gun industry have given the NRA over $20 million and maybe up to $52 million. Uh, they also made uh, $21 million, which is about 10% of all their revenue from selling advertising to industry companies, marketing products. So... When you think of the NRA, I think it's important to think of it as, yes, there's some very responsible gun owners that are people of the old gun culture, but the NRA is representing gun manufacturers now, and the, what a responsible gun owner wants and what a firearms manufacturer wants might be two different things.
0: And to be a cynic if you look, and this goes right along with what you're saying about hunting license, I was looking at some statistics today. I think in the early 70s, we peaked out about 50, nationally, about 50% of homes had guns. That has almost dropped in half. I think we're down to about 25% of homes. And if you're being a cynic and, and going along with what you're saying about buying guns, and this is something to do with money as well, if you buy those guns, we have to have fear. There ha- you have to be afraid of something. There has to be a boogeyman that you need to protect yourself from. And I, I don't want to point a finger at the NRA or any particular group, but there certainly is fear mongering that the boogeyman is out there to get you, that you need a gun to protect yourself, that around any corner you could be killed, you could be raped. The Democrats are coming to get your guns. Obama's coming to get your guns. Uh, from my cold, dead fingers, uh, Charlton Heston said at the NRA convention. And there is this fear, irrational fear, that we're protecting ourselves from, I don't know, like that we live in tombstone, that a gunfight is going to break. I, I've been alive 46 years, and honestly, I have never been in a situation where I said, I wish I could shoot a gun at somebody. And I'd never have been with anyone. I'd never heard a story from somebody who's ever said, boy, I wish I had a gun to shoot someone because they had to do it. Like, that just doesn't, it's so rare, but if we perpetuate that fear that everything's out to get you.
1: Well, I think both sides do this. The people for gun control,
0: more stringent gun
1: control, and the people against it. Oh yeah, absolutely. The, the 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 fact is violent crime has been going down significantly right. for the last 20 years. You're less likely to be a victim of a violent crime now than you were in the 1990s. I think if you talk to the average American, they're going to say, "Oh yeah, things keep getting worse." I don't God knows, and it's because of the news media and of, you know, the 24-hour news cycle. But it's also because both sides use Things like this unfortunate school shooting, uh, they think is an example of what they need, uh, you know, uh, needs to be done. Either more stringent controls because things keep getting too too violent right. and these guns are taking too many lives. Or the other side goes, no, like Donald Trump, you know, we, we, we need armed teachers. We need more firearms because things are getting so violent. Now, I think we do need common sense gun controls. But I think the bottom line, you should always look at what is actually happening. Statistics are important. The fact is, violent crimes have gone down. They have continued to go down. And if you're a
0: prone gun person, you're saying, look, violent crime has gone down as gun ownerships are going up.
1: But they haven't. You just mentioned that homes, fewer homes have
0: them. Well, fewer homes have them, but there are more guns out there.
1: Right, but fewer homes right. have them, in the hands so, of fewer people. Right, so I, I don't think you could, you could argue that. I think there's other reasons too. I mean, uh, but uh, for whatever reason, I think it's important to keep in mind and that we actually have less, as you mentioned. You don't know of anybody who now I, I ha- I, I actually know a person who did see a police officer shot. So that, but it was in the 1970s the late 1970s so uh it still happens there's still violence and there's certainly there's these mass shootings are on the rise so that's what i think we need to look at is if some of these other violent crimes are going down. certainly mass shootings are on the rise and how do you deal with them with the mass shootings
0: um
1: so how do you deal with mass shootings well i think that
0: it, we're we're a smart people and when there's a problem, um, you study it. That's what you do. You study the problem. And when cars were killing people, and they still do, um, but we have so many more cars on the road today and traffic deaths are way down. We study cars. How do we make cars safer? We want cars. So how do we do it? So we, we put, we set, we set money aside and we research it. And this is where- yeah, I can remember when cars didn't have seatbelts. Right. And then they were
1: required to have seatbelts. And then there was a big argument uh, over airbags. Right. And, and they were required to have airbags because they were proven to help save people's lives.
0: And as we see, cars become safer and safer and safer. And what happened with guns is the exact opposite. In the 90s, when the Centers for Disease Control um, and Prevention- decided that they were finally going to start researching this thing. Um, Tens of thousands of people are dying. Um, They spent, I think, $2.6 million that year to research guns. And what happened is the gun lobby chimed in with the Republican Party and threatened to cut the budget of the CDC. Originally, they were going to cut the budget of the CDC, $40 million. That was um, their whole budget for just I have the language written down here, um, and I'm going to miss it here. Oh, injury control was called. So they had a $40 million budget just for injury control. They were going to cut the whole $40 million budget. They didn't. They compromised that, okay, CDC, we're only going to cut your budget $2.6 million, the money you spent on gun control. Then in 1996, we get language that basically says um, – Gun research one to strip. Okay, blah, blah, blah. I think I had this written down. Um, no, none of the funds made available for injury prevention and control may be used. And this was a language may be used to advocate or promote gun control. And what that did effectively is shut down research at the federal level, but it had a cascading effect that if you are Duke University, if you're Maryland University and you're pretending and you're depending on federal dollars. To keep your research facilities open the hell you're not going to research guns i mean right. you could lose your research dollars on that so they give you an idea of what a stinging effect this had and this was i, I watched a, a podcast today or listened to a podcast and between 1973 and 2012 okay the the national institute of health has done 89 studies on rabies do you want to guess how many americans were killed between 1973 and 2012 in rabies? I'll go 95. You are high. at 63. Okay. So 89 studies. In that same time period, the National Institute of Health for guns, which has killed 4 million people compared to 63, they have done three studies on gun violence. So we sit here now to to come up with a solution and we have no idea what the solution is.
1: Well, the solutions tend to be ideological because we've denied ourselves facts. Uh, And and that goes back to what I was saying about violence too. We, We think, I think most people on both sides of this debate think that violence is increasing when it is violent crime is not increasing. And it is important to have facts because those should be what are determining our our course of action, and here's an example of of one of the things that I hear that's very ideological. I'm sure you've seen it too when there's a mass shooting like this there's inevitably somebody that chimes in and goes well and and, and people say, "Well, this doesn't happen in other countries, and it doesn't happen in other developed countries there are shooting there's there's Countries that have more gun violence than ours. I think El Salvador is mu- <laughs> yes. much worse than ours. But there's no country with our stage of economic and governmental development that has anything You close. have to look apples to apples on something like yeah. this. And, and, uh, but what, what you'll hear is, well, you know, in England, uh, they stab people. I've, I've read about stabbings. Or hammers kill <laughs> yes. people. Are we going to outlaw hammers? I think I just saw a uh, a um, congressman that was was interviewed for the Gettysburgian that I think was posted on my Facebook, and he said, "Well, yeah, things happen with the AR-15, but what about cars? As if an AR-15 and a car were somehow equivalent? You have these crazy equ- equivalencies, right? And I just, uh, so I, I, I looked up, I wondered, you know, like, obviously you have a firearm because it's lethal. That, that's why you want it, for self-protection. Uh, you, you, know, you probably, if, if not, why are if you think knives are just as lethal, why would you go out and spend a lot of money on a gun?
0: Think what our military could save. Yeah, you could arm the guys with swords. And, and hammers.
1: Ambers, so I I wondered about this. Go to Lowe's, but I looked up and I I mentioned I'm from Indiana, and I I, I looked up. There was a woman accused of beating her male companion to death with a bowling ball. Not too long ago,
0: and that shouldn't be funny, but it is. I know, and she was convicted
1: early today of voluntary manslaughter. Uh, Monroe Superior Court deliberated ten hours before finding the woman, Uh, Glendon Wenninger, forty-one years old, guilty. She had been charged with the murder for repeatedly dropping a fourteen pound I'm sorry, this is not funny, but bowling ball on the head of Stephen Detmer, thirty-seven, as he lay on the floor in front of a television set January fourth in the Bloomington apartment they shared. All right. So you can kill people with bowling balls. And I you know, I can make the argument, well, I know there was an AR fifteen uh down in, in Florida, but you know, what if the guy had a bowling ball? Because people can kill Right, And, of course, it's a dumb argument. Uh, you can kill people, many people and wound people, uh, much faster with a firearm than most of the other things that are, you know, a knife or a gun. We've taught—excuse me, not a, a knife or a hammer or a bowling ball. I mean, can you imagine a guy in Las Vegas— the number of bowling balls he would have had to throw it out the window to, he, you know, he killed what was 58, yeah, and something wounded like five, that. 500 were injured with a bump not,
0: stock. If you heard this, if you saw the footage of that, it was, it sounded like an automatic weapon,
1: right? And I don't know if he wounded, if the bullet wounded 500, some people were killed, and hurt as they ran away and so forth. And I don't know if the crowd caused, but over 500 people. You can't do that with bowling ball. No, no. So it's, that's a dumb argument. So I, nobody should ever post that or consider that an argument against some kind of restrictions on guns that, oh, you can kill people with other stuff. Yeah, everybody knows that. That's just like common sense. But the reason our soldiers carry firearms into battle is because they're lethal. They don't carry the bowling ball, you know? And <laughs> <laughs> bowling, you would get tired of carrying the bowling ball. It's heavy. And it, I'm, I'm sure it's range restricted as well. So- uh that's a dumb argument. Uh, and that's that's one I, I hear. And let's get out of that way that out of the way is that's just a
0: really really Well let me throw another argument at you argument. That, that I often see on social media. Um and that is we don't have a gun problem. We have a respect for life problem and a love problem and a sin problem. What I don't know how to measure that. I don't know right. how to measure sin. I don't know. And assuming that's all true, let's say we have a love problem and a sin problem. It would be so bad to put a Band-Aid on the problem while we solve that bigger problem. It would be so bad. Like, you know, my son, my my youngest is 11, but when he was little, he might have a temper problem and he might be hitting the dog with a bat. I say, I still take the bat away while I work on the temper. You know what I mean? I don't say, well... It's not a bad problem that my son has. It's a temper problem. So he can still have the bat. I'm working on the temper problem. He can hit the We We still take that lethal thing away, do we not? While we work on, I don't know if it's a morality problem. I, I don't know what it is, but wouldn't you still take that lethal thing away or restrict in some way?
1: Yeah, you, you would restrict it in some way. But here's another false argument that I hear a, a red herring. A, you know uh, argument, I hear people say, "Well, if you ban guns, only bad people will have guns right. good people and uh, to tell you the truth, certainly not from the way I grew up, I'm not in for banning guns now. I'm sure there might be some gun gun control advocates that want to ban firearms, but I'm not one of them, and I don't think that's the majority i no, I, I I think that's a small minority, so anytime somebody says, "Well, you just want to ban guns." I don't want to ban guns at all. I I I told you I I grew up in a gun culture. I'm 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 fine with the private ownership of guns. And when I have come to think about the Second Amendment, it's even though it's linked to a militia. I went to this one website called Gun Site. Site C I T E. It's a pro gun site, mm-hmm. and they said, well, you know, the the framers weren't creating a a right to bear arms, they were kind of acknowledging that people had them, that there was an individual right already in place. And they linked that individual right to the collective right of being in a militia and protecting your community. And I think I'm okay with that. I know that if you're in a militia, that's probably the National Guard now, the closest thing. But I still think if you go original intent on the Second Amendment, they didn't want people maybe who who weren't in a militia not to have firearms. There was a lot of people who did. And I support that right. But there's no way I can read this amendment at all and think that it's incompetent people should buy lethal weapons. My idea of a modern, well-regulated right to buy firearms and right to possess and use firearms would include training in the firearms that you want to purchase. Mandatory training? Mandatory training. I would like to see this done on the state level. I think more people would trust it. And, um, and the original militias, uh, in keeping with the Second Amendment, were uh, state-run organizations to some extent. And what I would like to see every gun owner uh, have is, is a license of some variety showing they you know how to use a weapon properly, how to clean that weapon, how to store it, and its potential for destruction. And maybe I was scarred somewhat by the turtle incident, <laughs> but I think it would be a good idea for people to owning a firearm to see maybe pictures of autopsies of uh, people who have been shot. I would want them to know in their hearts, the lethal uh, capability of what they're about to put into their hands. I would also support mandatory background checks for criminal activity, domestic abuse, and mental illness, if there's a history uh, that comes up of mental illness, and and that would prevent someone from uh, purchasing and, and, and keeping a firearm. I'm more focused on that type of training than the particular type of firearm that they get. Everybody believes that as firearms' lethality increases, there has to be more restrictions. You're going to find very, very few people that say,
0: you know, let's just make people be able to get fully automatic weapons. Right. That's an extreme. Extreme on both sides is we want to get rid of all guns and you should own a bazooka. Right. 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 Most people think the line should be drawn somewhere. Right.
1: What I don't want is people to have firearms, which I were taught were not toys, were extremely lethal, to have them without training. I, I, I own a gun, but I, I had training. I had good training. I had thorough training. And because, I don't think most, a lot of people do. I don't know about most, but I don't think a lot of people do. It's crazy
0: that you can walk into a gun store at 18 and buy an ar-15 with a bump stock i mean that to me that's that's irresponsible to the 18 year old you're putting that you're giving you're giving them something they're not prepared most i would say aren't prepared to control be like giving my 16 year old a dodge viper it's just too much power it's just too much there for them to control the drive
1: well, I was given a pellet gun, and then yes, a twenty-two, exactly. and then was allowed to use the shotgun. And you know, there is a gradation because my dad knew about firearms, but a whole lot of people, because the gun culture and hunting licenses are down and so forth, aren't coming it from, from from that perspective. Let me let me give you an example of what my regime would prevent. <laughs>
0: Your regime, yeah,
1: my regime <laughs> of gun control. I, I don't mean my regime of being in charge, okay. but my my regime in the sense of. My ideas about gun control. It would prevent what happened uh, just a few miles from here uh, five years ago. He's referring,
0: we live in Lancaster County. Yeah. Uh, he's referring to what happened at Nickel Mines.
1: No, actually, it's, it's not Nickel Mines. What I was referring to is the shooting that happened in Pioneer Woods, oh, which is very okay. close to the school we okay. teach at, where a young man bought a gun, uh, a young father, on New Year, uh, Christmas Eve and bought a home. And was, this is a quote, playing with it, when he shot his infant daughter in her swing and killed her. All right. And I think I read in the paper this was the third gun he bought. This man had no business having any firearm whatsoever. He had a round in the chamber indoors. No, right, never, never. Never. He didn't have the safety on if, they, if, it, if this gun had a regular safety. He didn't have the safety on. And he did what my dad thought was one huge cardinal sins. He had pointed this gun. The barrel was, was I don't know, not intentionally aimed, but it went obviously in the direction of his baby daughter. He had no business whatsoever with a gun. If he had to prove his competence with a gun, if he had seen pictures of the destructive power of a weapon, I don't think that would have happened. No, it wouldn't have happened. That family would have been prevented a horrible tragedy. And there's more accidental gun deaths in the United States than there are mass deaths from mass shootings. Yeah. So that's one type. Here's another type. Adam La uh, who's the guy who uh, went in with his AR15 and killed all the teachers and the Sandy Hook. The, the the young kids in Connecticut. He he was bought his weapon by by his mother and they, she thought they were bonding over shooting if her and Adam had to go through a course and there was an instructor there and they had to prove their competence stuff. So. Well, if you ever seen a picture of Adam uh, Lanza, so somebody might have red flagged him. You know, he did have a history of of misbehavior in that school. That's why he went back to that school. Right. Uh, maybe the mother would know, uh, have been informed that this is not the thing to do with your son w- when she had an idea of the destructive capability of that weapon and right. what might happen. So I think that shooting might have prevented by what I'm talking about. Will it prevent? Every shooting, I don't know. And you mentioned nickel mines. We did have a mass school shooting. We had 11 Amish kids that were shot, five of them who died. But that was by an older person. And I don't believe they had a criminal record or any obvious history of uh, mental illness. So I don't know if what I'm talking about would prevent
0: that. You can't prevent every. No. And that's the
1: other false thing that people keep saying. Well, you know, this could happen and that could happen. There have been laws against murder and rape and stealing uh, since time immemorial. Has it ever stopped murder, rape, and stealing? No. What you want to do is improve. Right. You want to reduce the number of mass shootings. Do I think if you had a uh, fairly strict uh, licensing procedure... Yes, I absolutely think that would cut down on some mass shootings and accidental fire.
0: Well, the evidence would suggest you're absolutely right. When you look at um, hunting accidents uh, in the state of Pennsylvania, you will notice a sharp decrease after hunter safety courses were put into place. Is that right? Yes. Uh, Even though the number of hunters afterwards, it was still climbing at that point, but you still had more hunters in the woods and a decline in— and if you've ever taken a hunter safety course— they're insanely easy, um, but it's basic stuff that people don't know. Things you don't do, and I really like you said what you what you said about seeing the impact of it. I hear a lot about violent video games, and I am not a believer that violent video games make people violent. If that were the case, I believe you would see South Korea and Japan be extremely violent places, and they aren't. Um, other countries that play these games, but I think what these games have an impact is what you're talking about it turns the gun into a toy it, it you don't really understand the destructive power i'm thinking of an interview i saw with uh, a sandy hook the teacher who one of the teachers that died her sister was being interviewed and she made that comment she goes if you were to saw the holes in my sister's clothing you'd understand the the power of this gun she goes the holes were the size of baseballs you know this is This is is not a pellet gun, you know, and you're absolutely right. The destructive power of something, you lose that in media. You lose it, and I think that's part of it. I don't think it makes us violent, but I think it makes us not appreciate the destructive power you're holding in your hand.
1: Yeah, I I do too. It's because you've, you've seen, you know, you shoot somebody in a video game, there's no lasting effect. It can kind of desensitize you. This goes back to my dad shooting the turtle. You right now, <laughs> <So, laughs> shooting the turtle, you know, which he'll probably forever live in infamy because of that. But you know what? Uh, my brother and I never pointed a gun at anybody after that because we knew what it what it could do. Um, and and I think my idea has the advantage of being a very very conservative one. Yes, there's we're no not, we're not taking your guns. yeah, and there's no rights without responsibility. That's usually a conservative argument. Right. You you need to grow up and be put on your big boy pants or big girl pants when when you become a, a, an adult. You need to take responsibility. And I can just, you know, I wish my dad was here. I'd love to talk. But the idea that someone could have a firearm like an AR-15 with that kind of destructive power and not be thoroughly trained would be totally anathema. He would think that was ridiculous. Uh and you know he's he was a major in the paratroopers. He's not a touchy feely guy, <laughs> but he would think that's ridiculous. That that, and I think it's ridiculous, and most Americans should find it ridiculous. Here's another thing, I would say. You know, you're a social studies teacher. I was a social studies teacher. But one of the principles that we are taught when we interpret the rights of people, which we certainly believe in rights, is your rights and... If they start to interfere with the rights of another person. Right. One of the most famous formulations about that is freedom of speech. And the idea that you can't, uh, was it Oliver Wendell Holmes, I right. think, you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. Freedom of speech doesn't include that. Well, why doesn't it include that? Because that endangers people. You, now you can't do that. I mean, physically you can do that, but you don't have the right. We're way, way past the point with firearms that they are infringing on the rights of other people. In Aurora, in Columbine, you know, it goes on and on. nightclub Yeah. It, it goes on and on in Las Vegas. These, the right to carry, any right has limitations. The founders never thought any of these rights were unlimited. And I get the idea from certain members of the area. They think, well, my right to carry a firearm is unlimited. Of course it's not. Of course it's not. Your right to do anything is not. You have the right to religious freedom. That doesn't mean you can sacrifice a child in the full moon because your religion requires that. Because your rights end where other people's rights begin. Right. And we're way past the point that these firearms, there needs to be more regulation. Now, I'm in the favor of competence. Is proving competence and having background checks, I'm I, more so than I am limiting the particular weapon. But other people may have a different opinion about that.
0: Right. I mean, I, I think that brings us back to the beginning here and to try to wrap this up. And that is, where do we go from here? Um, and is Parkland, is the Florida incident a turning point in this, um, in the Second Amendment? I, I think that you have to deal with what's in front of you. And to look at the history of the Second Amendment. And I know we didn't have we wanted to get in some more stuff. We wanted to talk about some, some some Supreme Court cases. I know that um that kinda got pushed out of the wayside. Uh and this is an individual right versus a group right. Um but in the end, I think um we have to deal with what's in front of us in the moment. And I, I go back to that question I asked you in the beginning. Is this the turning point for us? And I'm gonna kinda end it with this to hear what your opinion is on this. Um, and ask you to predict the future here. Like I said in the beginning, I thought Sandy Hook was a turning point. I really did. I sat there, I'm like, my God, they killed, he killed kindergartners at point-blank range. Something's going to give, and it didn't. But this seems different to me. These kids are pissed. You know, and this is the, ne- and they're voting in two years. Some of them maybe even this year, because they're in high school. And this seems to be, a political movement that is beginning, is this change?
1: Well, what I would tell gun owners uh, is that there's going to be some more restrictions on, on the carry of firearms. Now, if you look at Trump's proposal to make schools safer, we're both, I, I used to be a teacher, I'm still a teacher. But we're going to arm 20% of the teachers to be, uh, and, and, and that will prevent it. And again, I want to go to my dad's experience in World War II. And my father said that during firefights, he was able to function. And he saw people who weren't able to function, and a lot of them got killed. They froze up, they hesitated, and they got killed. And these are young men. Remember, these are young men, many of whom grew up in a back with a god, right. many, many more than, than people nowadays. Not only that they knew they were marching into battle. They heard the sounds of battle. They heard the machine guns. They heard they they were ready for it. They went through basic training. They they went through boot camp. They learned how to use a firearm. And and they again they were young. And my dad saw them in a threatening situation. Some of them couldn't function and he didn't ever criticize them. It was just he was just matter of factly telling me why he survived and other people did not, which I've heard many soldiers in that situation think about. So the idea that a teacher and, you know, you're teaching them about the constitution or about, you know, binomials or whatever you're doing and everybody's relaxing and somebody comes in with a gun and you're going to use that firearm in a, and you're going to just shoot the bad guys. You're not going to shoot it and you're not going to freeze up It's ridiculous. There's a lot of fantasy about gun culture. Or I'm not going to
0: accidentally shoot the kid that's running into my room. To to tell me that there's a shooter next door when you hear the fire. Of
1: course, you know, and I've talked to police officers and other people who've done security training. And you guys, uh, you know the, uh, you've probably seen this in some police movies, where you go through a little maze and people pop out, at least targets pop out, and sometimes a civilian pops out and stuff. I have yet to talk to a police officer or a person in charge of security for a place. What they say to me is that you will shoot a lot of civilians before you stop shooting them. (laughs) So, I mean, these are guys who are doing this training all the time. So, again, there's a lot of fantasy. And maybe, you know, Trump has some of this fantasy because he was never a police officer and never in the military. These fantasies that, you know, I'll just pull out a gun and I'll immediately do the right thing and I'll shoot the bad guy and and life will be good. Or that's not going to happen. That's just not going to happen. A good guy with a gun is no real um, danger or protection against a bad guy with a gun. What I would say is an extremely well-trained person with a gun, extremely well-trained person is some protection. So I again, I would like to see most people who own, uh, own a firearm be much, much better trained than what they are now. By the way, I've talked to a ton of gun owners. Very few gun owners, not the NRA, but very few gun owners have rejected my idea out of hand. Most of them are like, yeah,
0: I, I'd do that. Makes sense. Yeah. Because you're not taking guns away from people. Right. You own what you want, but we're right.
1: going to train you but on But
0: remember them. the NRA,
1: you're not going to sell as many guns. There's right. more
0: barriers. It goes, yes. And so some of what the NRA I think a does- great connection you made.
1: Yeah. Some of what the NRA does is want to push guns. And if 20% of teachers have teachers, allowed, there's going to be more guns. Right. So they'll be able to increase sales. I don't think that's a solution to our problem.
0: All right. Jeff, thanks for joining me. I know we went long there, about an hour and 10 minutes. Um, again, you're listening to History, Politics, and Beer. Um, hope you enjoyed it. Hey, we got an email address, beer at gmail.com. So if you want to drop us a line, let us know what you thought. Uh, first time doing this. Um, let us know we were good, we were bad, or we are ugly. We'll take any uh, criticism or compliments at this point. And also, if you'd like to hear us talk about a particular issue, uh, history and government is sort of our specialty. I thought maybe we're looking at talking about impeachment and the history of impeachment coming up. I know uh, Hudson wanted to talk a little bit about the legitimacy of elections and that. So, hey, thanks for joining us. If you want to drop us a line, we appreciate it. The next time. See ya. Bye.